This podcast from Teacher is supported by 7 Steps to Writing Success. Transform your writing classroom today. Engage your students and improve results. Visit 7stepswriting.com. Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of The Research Files from Teacher Magazine. I'm Rebecca Vukovic. If you were to visit any preschool or kindergarten classroom, you'd surely find that shared book reading is a common activity used to facilitate discussions and support a young child's language and literacy development. A new study published in Early Childhood Research Quarterly examined the extent to which preschool teachers use different types of questions during classroom-based shared book reading. Researchers from the Children's Learning Institute at the University of Texas, Ohio State University, the American Institute for Research and Michigan State University all collaborated on this study. They found that only 24% of what teachers said during the shared book reading were questions, and the kids answered the questions accurately 85% of the time. In today's episode, I'm joined by one of the study's authors, Dr. Trisha Zucker, who is an associate professor with the Children's Learning Institute at McGovern Medical School at UT Health in Houston. We chat about what the main findings were to come from the research, whether the questions teachers were asking were too simple for students, and how teachers could improve their questioning practices to ensure children are given the appropriate level of challenge. To get it all started, here is Dr. Zucker explaining what the aims were for the study. Well, we were um, quite interested in studying the types of questions that preschool and kindergarten teachers ask children when they read books to children. And uh, this is a very common practice in early childhood classrooms, and I'm sure most of us grew up having stories read to us. But uh, we wanted to really describe in great detail the types of questions teachers ask and what happens uh, when children are given a chance to answer those questions. Yeah, fantastic. So let's cover all the basics to begin. Who was involved in the study, where were they located, and when did it all take place? Yes, well, we have been doing this work for about the last four to five years, um, and the study took place in the South, Central, and Midwestern United States, so we had two different sites, and we worked with 82 pre-kindergarten teachers, so they're um, teaching four-year-olds, and then 14 kindergarten teachers. So uh, most of the kids were ages three, to five and a half um, with with the mean age of four years old. Okay, fantastic. Uh, So let's delve into it now then. How did you actually go about conducting the study? Well, this is a study that was part of a larger project um, from funded by the Department of Education's Institute of Education Sciences with the aim of developing better measures of classroom discourse quality. So we want to know uh, what are the things teachers and kids talk about and how can we best measure that? So 
we um, set out to measure this in the context of book reading, um, because as I said, it's a familiar everyday activity, and also it's a controlled sort of stimulus event where there's a definite starting point and a definite ending point of when you start reading the book and you finish discussing it. So the larger project was called the Systematic Assessment of Book Reading, and we developed a measure of book reading that is uh, available at no cost through our um, university websites. So. Uh, so that's a long way to say that we, when we went about conducting the study, we were really focused on using the right books, the right uh, materials for teachers to read to kids. Yeah, and I'm curious about how you actually went about choosing the book because, as you said, all the teachers in the study read the same text, which was Kingdom of Friends, a book you co-authored with Jill Pentamonti. Was there a specific reason for choosing this book? Yes, we had several reasons um, that we... Um, actually developed this book ourselves. Um, the first was that um, as part of it, as part of the research and the assessment, we did not want there to be differences across classrooms such that some teachers had read the book to their students before and others were unfamiliar with it. So uh, in some of our past studies, we have used books like The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And of course, this is a widely known book, um, but uh, maybe some newer teachers haven't read this book to their students, um, whereas other teachers are quite familiar with it and would even bring out props and things like that. So we wanted to not have any differences uh, related to familiarity of the text. So that was one reason we went about authoring the book ourselves. And then the second reason is that as part of the larger um, body of research on the qualities of book reading, we wanted to create a narrative text and an informational text that were equivalent in length and equivalent in the number of sophisticated vocabulary words. So the particular study we're, we're talking about today focuses on the narrative text called Kingdom of Friends. And, um, uh, but we have a larger set of work looking at how this, this type of reading compares to informational text reading. And finally, the, the last reason we chose this book, um, or we wrote the book we wrote the way we did, is that we wanted this to be a very uh, emotional narrative that dealt with a topic of high salience to young children. Uh, preschool and kindergarten teachers report that to be ready for school, one of the most important things that young children need is to be able to control their strong emotions. So we wrote a book about some very strong emotions. Um, the main character is named Petunia, and she gets a bit bossy with her best friend, Diego, and uh, they, they run into a huge problem during their playtime, and she kicks down this tower they have worked on together she really becomes enraged and he becomes quite frustrated too. So the, this is all um, to say that what we did is we made sure that we had um, a book that covered the full range of positive and negative emotions so that we would hopefully elicit lots of conversation about the things that matter for young children in, in terms of being able to regulate their emotions and even just name their emotions. Coming up, Dr. Zucker discusses the main findings to come from this research and talks us through some of the learning opportunities that are missed by teachers asking questions that are just too simple for students. But first, here's a quick message from our sponsor. This podcast from Teacher is supported by 7 Steps to Writing Success. Imagine a vibrant writing classroom where every student is engaged, contributing ideas and sharing their work with excitement. That's what a 7 Steps classroom looks like. 
Visit sevenstepswriting.com to start transforming writing in your school today. So let's talk about the findings from the study now. So when reading the books to students, what were the different types of questions that teachers asked and what type of response did they elicit? Well, um, we looked at seven different categories of questions and what we found um, descriptively is first that questions were about 24% of what teachers did as they spoke to kids and and that's quite normal we see in the larger literature that about 20 25 to 35 percent of what teachers say is questions so then amongst that set of questions um, we we dug deeper into okay let's let's look at exactly what types of questions we saw and uh, the most frequent type of questions asked are what we call wh questions so these are who what when type of questions um, and this also was um, quite similar to what we were expecting, as well as uh, there were a large number of yes-no questions. So those are questions that um, just require a simple yes or no response. Um, WH questions, those happened about one and a half times per minute, or, so that was about 41% of all questions. And then the next most tom uh, common type of question was auxiliary-fronted questions, and those happened about every minute, so that's 27% of questions. And then what we saw the least of were uh, questions that we call why questions or how procedural questions. So these questions only happened uh, about uh, three or four percent of with of the all the questions and so you would see those happening very rarely you know just every, every it would be um, just a few times during book reading that you might hear these nice why and how questions um, and when we looked at what types of responses each question form elicited that's where the the results get really interesting so we found that the why and how questions they tended to elicit the longest child responses, as well as um, we looked at whether children's responses were accurate or inaccurate. And we found that um, children gave more inaccurate responses to the why and how, how procedural questions, but it wasn't too, too hard for them. They, um, they, would, they would have a little bit of difficulty answering these questions, but not too much. In contrast, the yes and no type of questions that we saw so many of, kids almost always got those right. Those were very simple. And of course, you know, you have a 50% chance of answering that question correctly. Yeah, so do children respond more accurately then to certain types of questions than others? So overall, what we saw is that children seem to find uh, teachers' questions quite easy to answer. In fact, 85% of children's responses to teacher questions were accurate and um, when we look more closely, we can see, uh, as, as I've mentioned, that WH questions uh, tended to produce a little, a little bit more of those inaccurate responses than some of the other question forms, like yes, no questions. Uh, but that's actually a good thing. It's really a good thing to see kids struggling a little bit to, ask, to answer a question, because that tells us that we are in the zone where learning happens. Um, teachers think of this as the zone of proximal development, where a task is not too easy, uh, not too hard, but just right, because uh, it, it might be a little bit challenging at 
the first bit of the conversation, that very first question, but what we saw is that our effective teachers go on to have a multiple turn conversation where even though the first response was inaccurate, those teachers stayed with the child and they pulled out an accurate response through some nice scaffolding techniques or, um, or by just rephrasing the question in another way to help children come along with, the, with um, this more complex type of, of reasoning. Yeah, and you also examined the relationship between the types of questions asked by the teachers and the length of children's responses to examine if certain types of teacher questions are more likely to elicit multi-word responses from children. What did you find there? Well, yeah, these preschool and kindergarten age children, they're not toddlers. We know that they can give very lengthy responses if given the right opportunity. And unfortunately, what we found is that most of what children produced were very short responses, single word responses. However, the the really um, fantastic questions are the ones that elicited a longer multiple word response. And those um, tended to be questions that um, were those WH questions, again, the who, what, when, where, um, and also why questions produced more multi-word responses. Um, we were a little surprised to see that a certain type of how question, what we called how feeling questions, like how is the character feeling on this page, those also tended to elicit just a one word response. So how is, how is he feeling? Well, he's mad or she's sad. Um, and again, our, our really effective teachers would stick with children and say, okay, you've, you've now given me a correct response, but let's talk more. Well, okay, he is feeling sad. Why is he feeling so sad? Oh, it, you think it's because she's being a little bit too bossy and not giving, giving him a chance to make any choices of what they're gonna play. So those, those are the some of our next steps actually, is to keep looking at um, how teachers carry forward, not just that first question, but how do they develop a whole conversation that really supports kids' learning and language development. Yeah, so overall, your results from this study show that the questions teachers asked did not seem to challenge children enough, given they were able to answer the vast majority of them accurately. So I was wondering then, what kinds of learning opportunities are being missed? Well, you're right. Um, one of our takeaways and what we concluded from the study is that there is a missed opportunity here to really challenge kids and to move into the zone of proximal development or to find those teachable moments where a question is a little challenging for kids. As, as a teacher, we should really welcome uh, these inaccurate responses because that's where we can come in and, and help them to uh, have an opportunity for learning by reframing the initial question or um, or helping them to um, think about it in, in another way through a scaffold. So um, when when we saw that 85% of questions were answered accurately, that that is a disconnect for, from the larger literature um, where theory suggests that you want about maybe 30 to 40% of questions that you ask to be challenging. You do want about 30% of responses to be inaccurate because that lets you know kids are being given an opportunity to learn. So um, we can't say definitively what the exact proportion of uh, easy to hard questions would look like, but these data do suggest that 
uh, early childhood teachers questions are a little too easy for kids and that it would be a good opportunity to up the ante and expect more from kids because they can answer these more complicated inferential level questions. Yeah, so how could a teacher improve their questioning practices to ensure that those children are given the opportunity to give the more lengthy responses and ensure they're provided that level of challenge you spoke about? Well, that is a great question. And um, I'm going to give you a couple different um, ideas of, of ways that teachers can do this. So one thing that our research is suggesting is that a really easy way to um, move conversation to these higher level why and how questions is to read an informational text. We do tend to see that um, those type of books just generate more complex language and conversations without um, without much thought, without much extra planning. So I would challenge teachers, first of all, to, to give kids a good diet of genres of text so that they're hearing not only narratives, but also informational or expository text, even at these young ages. Uh, the second thing that teachers can do is they can be really intentional and planful in uh, preparing a set of questions before they read now, um, what we tend to do is we, we provide a lot of training and professional development for teachers where we don't want to overwhelm kids with all these super hard questions on the very first time that they've heard a book, um, but uh, we wanna ask a few simple questions. Make sure, check for understanding. Are they, are they tracking? Are they with us? Um, are, they, are they understanding the basics of this story? And when you can see that kids are understanding, then it is the time to push conversation to a higher level. So certainly after reading, you would want to ask some questions like, well, what do you think the author wants us to learn from this book? Or, you know, uh, why do you think that the characters made the choices they did? And what would you do differently if you were in this situation? So those are the types of questions that really take some intentional planning because most of the time, by the time you've gotten to the end of a story, the kids are getting a little restless. And so you need to make sure that you've got some really meaty questions already planned that guide that conversation. And perhaps even you have, uh, you've previewed that question before reading and that way the kids know all right, there's a big question. There's a guiding question we are going to think about the whole time we're hearing this story. And after reading, my teacher's expecting me to be able to dialogue about these things. And just setting that expectation for kids, priming kids that they will be expected to answer that sort of question. Uh, even little kids can do this and they have greater success when their teachers set them up for these types of really complex conversations that uh, even four-year-olds are able to produce. Yeah, fantastic. There's lots of practical advice there. Dr. Trisha Zucca, thanks for sharing your work with Teacher Magazine. Well, and I do also want to add um, a huge thank you to Richa Deschmuk. She is a postdoctoral uh, fellow here at our institute who uh, led this study and learned how to do all sorts of complex new analyses to complete it. So thank you to Richa and to the larger team um, at our many institutions, American Institute for Research, Ohio State, and here at the University of Texas that um, all work together on this study. That's all for this episode. I'll include links to the research we've discussed today in the transcript for the podcast, which you'll find, of course, on teachermagazine.com.au. And if you'd like to listen to more from Teacher, you'll find us by searching Teacher, A-C-E-R, wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify as well.
You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher, supported by 7 Steps to Writing Success. Transform your writing classroom today, engage your students and improve results. Visit 7stepswriting.com.